was it bad? What was it like? Working with him, working with her. You'll hear all the tales you wish you knew. Every aspect of the theater too. Feel your love of Broadway anew. On backstage babble. Hi. This is Charles Kirsch, and welcome to Backstage Babble. Backstage Babble is a podcast interviewing professionals in the theater industry about themselves, their careers, and the people they've worked with along the way. And before I introduce my very exciting guest today, I wanted to give a reminder about Backstage Babble Live at New York City Cabaret Venue 54 Below on Tuesday, September 6th at 7 p.m. It will feature 11 of my previous guests performing songs that they've performed on Broadway and beyond. The lineup is Meg Bussert, Charles Bush, Len Carew, Beth Fowler, David Jackson, Jill O'Hara, Brad Oscar, Christine Petty, Kurt Peterson, Leroy Reams, John Rubenstein, and David White. Remember to get your tickets on 54below.com or at the link in the episode description. You won't want to miss this evening. And now for today's show. I'm so happy to be joined by star of stage and screen, Constance Towers. Constance Towers starred on Broadway opposite Ewell Brynner in The King and I, as well as in Anya, The Engagement Baby, and Ari. She also associate-produced The Speed of Darkness and appeared in Dumas and Son on the Road, The Sound of Music at City Center, Showboat at Lincoln Center, Camelot in Summerstock, Six Dance Lessons in Six Weeks in Los Angeles, and Follies on Tour. Her myriad screen credits include The Naked Kiss, The Horse Soldiers, General Hospital, Capital, The Relic, Frasier, Designing Women, Bring Your Smile Along, and Fate is the Hunter. And now, without further ado, here's Constance Towers. So I'd love to start our interview by asking you how you first became interested in performing. How did I first get interested in performing? Well, it sort of fell on me because I was in a little grade school in Whitefish, Montana, and my Irish grandmother had insisted that I learn to read at age three, so she started me learning to read. So by the time I was in the first grade, I could read, and probably better than other students in my class. And a producer for a radio show came to my classroom and asked if anyone could read. That was prerequisite. And I said, well, I can do that. So they auditioned me, and I got the part on a little radio show in the Northwest. Um, I don't recall what the name of it was, but I played the part of a little boy, and I did it for about three years. I always say until my voice changed. But we won many awards in the in the whole Northwest area with the show. And so it kind of gave me a beginning, uh, fell in my lap. So I didn't have to seek it, it sort of sought me out. And was acting something you had had in mind before then, or was this a surprise? Or was this Oh no, I, did, oh. I don't think I even knew it, that there was such a thing uh, in the first grade. So no, it was uh, a total surprise for me. And and uh, 
a wonderful one because I loved it so much and enjoyed it that uh, it started me off on it. But no, I did not have that as a dream before. And did your parents support your desire to perform? My parents were absolutely wonderful. I had supportive parents who not only were happy that I did something that I enjoyed doing, but they made it possible by finding coaches. When I started to sing, uh, they found just the best coach in the, in the whole Northwest. And uh, equally, my sister was a swimmer, and uh, they found her the best swimming coach they could find. So, And they came to every performance, every swimming meet that she had. They were always there. So we were very lucky, and uh, so my parents were very supportive. And where did you study in terms of high school and college? And well, I, I studied, well, actually my family moved a lot. So I started in Whitefish, Montana, and, and ended up in, I, we went to Kalispell, Montana, Moscow, Idaho, Spokane, Washington, and finally Seattle, Washington. And then my father, who was in the pharmaceutical business, he was taken to New York City just as I was graduating from high school, and he was an executive vice president of the pharmaceutical company E.R. Squibb and Sons. And uh, so he took me with him. My parents moved to New York, and I moved to New York with them. And I went to Juilliard School of Music. And then uh, I went to the American Academy of Dramatic Arts. And what were some of the earliest shows or movies that you saw? Earliest shows and movies? Well, I really remember Wizard of Oz. Oh. I was little, but that made a tremendous impression on me. And the other was Snow White. I, and my life sort of followed Snow White. I've always had wonderful, sweet people around me um, and certainly married somebody who even looked like the prince in, in uh, Snow White. So my husband, I was lucky enough to marry John Gavin, who yes, could have been yeah. the prince riding in on that white horse. And did you originally want to perform on Broadway or in Hollywood? No, I, I really wanted to pursue an operatic career, oh, oh. and uh, I loved singing opera and sang on a radio show in the Northwest called the Northwest Theater, and uh, I always came in and stood on a little apple box and sang an operatic aria, and uh, so that was my dream, and when I went to Juilliard, that was still my dream, and uh, then... I went to the American Academy, and they wanted me to go to summer stock for a summer between the first year and the second year at the Academy, which I did. And the little theater that I went to up in Worcester, Massachusetts, the first show they did was Carousel, the oh. Rodgers and Hammerstein musical. And uh, I had the lead, and I just absolutely fell in love with the form of theater, the opportunity to sing the lyrics of Oscar Hammerstein, the music of Richard Rogers. And it really was a, a time for me, a formula, formulative time when I really changed my mind and decided that I would love to do Broadway musicals instead of opera. So that was when my, when my career changed and I fell in love with, with Broadway.
And what were some of the favorite roles that you did early on in Summerstock? And well, in Summerstock, uh, oh my goodness, you know, in Summerstock, you you perform one show at night and you're learning another one in the daytime. Yeah. Um, I did Anything Goes, um, Sound of Music, uh, a lot of the shows that I eventually ended up doing professionally are the shows that I started with. Um, so, and we did uh, Noel Coward one year in stock that was just great fun. So, those were the shows that I did, and I every summer would go out later on in my career and uh, and tour with other actors and do shows yes. all up and down the Eastern Seaboard, which you know was a great experience. Um, I don't think it really exists anymore, but we would all take shows out. Howard Keel, the movie actor, and I took out Camelot. We took out uh, Kiss Me, Kate. And did them all summer up and down the eastern seaboard in those wonderful theaters. And what was it like to be performing with Howard Keel, who, of course, is a great actor? He, he was terrific. He was he was a lot of fun, temperamental. Uh, he didn't like it when he didn't get the review, um, which was always fun. If a, if a reviewer in one of the places that we played decided that they liked me better. That was always um, sparked a bit of temperament on his part. But he was wonderful, and I loved him, and we enjoyed working together. And early on in your life and career, did people around you recognize that you had this like extraordinary talent, like friends or parents? Well, I don't know how extraordinary it was, but thank you. Um, my parents certainly realized that that it was something, if I wanted to pursue it, I probably had a great opportunity to succeed. And uh, so as I said, they were, they were, gosh, they were so wonderful. They were there all the time. And, uh, but things happened to me that were, that were just such good luck things. I was, I managed to be in the right place at the right time yeah. in some really important decisions in my career. The first job that I was ever really offered, I was still going to Juilliard and I was walking on Fifth Avenue in New York with a Hollywood agent and he knew me and so he was walking me down the street and a man came up to us, a very distinguished looking man, and who knew him and said, can she sing? And he said, sure she can sing. And he said, all right, you will open in the Maisonette in the St. Regis Hotel five weeks from now. Wow. So I said, okay. So I didn't even know what that meant, but we found somebody who would put together a little show for me of love songs, and uh, I found myself opening in the St. Regis Hotel Maisonette, which was a coveted uh, place to perform for any cabaret singer. Yeah. And I found myself standing there singing love songs, and I think it was the New Yorker magazine who wrote a review of the opening night and said, she stands and sings longingly about love, God bless her. So it was, it was kind of a wonderful review. Yeah. And that opening night, the top casting man, Max Arno, of Columbia Pictures in Hollywood happened to be 
in the audience, and he immediately sent me to fly to California to meet with Harry Cohn, who was the head of Columbia Pictures. And so I did, and I sang for Mr. Cohn and read a scene with an actor I didn't even know, and his name was Jack Lemmon. Um, And so Mr. Cohn signed me to a contract, and that's where I started my movie career. So I've just been in the right place at the right time. And when you were performing this cabaret, what were some of the love songs that you were singing? Oh, I sang uh, songs like um, Love is Many Splendid Thing, uh, anything in the Rogers and Hart Library, or Rogers, then Rogers and Hart had written, Rogers and Hammerstein hadn't written a lot of their shows, but um, Things from the King and I was certainly had been on Broadway already. So I just, I, I leaned on the American Songbook. And yeah. there were songs that I really loved, and I still sing them today. So, And do you generally enjoy doing a solo performance, or do you... Prefer- I love it. Oh, oh I love it. Uh, solo in a, in a club is terrific. I started there, and any opportunity I have to do a one-night concert someplace or go into a supper club, I love it. It's wonderful. You're very close to the audience. And uh, you have a very intimate relationship with your audience. And it's just different. It's a, it's a terrific medium to work in. And as you were suddenly in Hollywood after this cabaret performance, was that something that you'd sort of thought about, about being in movies? Well, yes and no. I, I, my mother saved my diary. And in my diary when I was little, I used to write... I want to be a movie star. But then when I came to California, when I was 11 with my, my sister was coming to swim in an AAU swimming meet. So my family came down to, to Hollywood, to Los Angeles for her to train and and be in her meet. And someone who knew me, I was little, I was 10. Somebody who knew me, a man who worked for Paramount Pictures, called and made an appointment for my parents to bring me over to Paramount to meet Milton Lewis, I think was his name, who was the big uh, casting man at Paramount at that time. So I stood and sang for him, and they offered me, they, they said, would you like to come and be at Paramount Pictures? And I said, oh, no, thank you. I, would, I want to be an opera singer, so... I'm not interested. Oh. And so later in my life, I thought, was I crazy? <laughs> but my parents went along with me. They said, sorry, if that's what she wants to do, then that's what she's going to do. So I turned Paramount Pictures down. Yeah. But then when you did get your contract, how did Bring Your Smile Along, which was one of your first big movies, happen? That was my first. That was the very first movie. Um I was at Columbia, and that was, of course, Harry Cohn, and he paired me with Frankie Lane and Keith Brissell. They were the two males, and a wonderful actress, friend for many years for me was Lucy Marlowe. She was so gifted, and she married Andy Carey of the New York Yankees. He was the third baseman 
with the New York Yankees. And she kind of gave up her career when she married him, but she was really gifted. That was kind of a coming up movie for her also. And uh, the director was Blake Edwards. And it was Blake's first, he's a writer at uh, Columbia Pictures, and it was his first directorial movie. (laughs) And uh, so I had a chance to thank him later on for keeping me from running into other actors. I didn't know what I was doing, but he was, he was a great director and wonderful to work with and just a very special man. And so you're one of the few people who has managed to be a great star in Hollywood and on Broadway. And why do you think that is that you've been able to transition so well between both mediums? Um, I think, again, I was in the right place at the right time. There was a producer in California, his name was Edwin Lester, and he produced many, many shows for many seasons at the Los Angeles Music Center. And then it was not the grand, wonderful buildings that we have today with the Disney Hall and, you know, it's a a beautiful art center. Then it was a a little theater that was called the Philharmonic down on, and it was a Baptist church that we performed in. But Mr. Lester put me in Guys and Dolls. I had never been on a stage before. And uh, when I walked out, I had a very interesting experience because I could not get over having worked in supper clubs where wearing blenders and all kinds of things go on, or your patrons, you know, make up in a fight in the back of the room or something. So you're always dealing with noise and cacophony in, in a supper club. Suddenly I walked out on stage, the audience was quiet, and that silence was just amazing to me. It was a, a really a different experience. But I played Sarah Brown in Guys and Dolls, and uh, I always loved the fact that it was coming into the Baptist church on, at, at the Philharmonic, and they had booked Guys and Dolls because they did not allow Gypsy which was a stri- stripper story, but they wouldn't allow that to play the theater, but they allowed Guys and Dolls, which was a gambling story. And I never quite understood that. But anyway, that was my first theater experience. And when the show, which was my first Broadway show, was prepared and ready to go on Broadway, it was Edwin Lester who talked to the producers, talked to George Abbott, talked to Wright and Forrest, who had written two other shows for him. They wrote Kismet and Song of Norway, and then they wrote Anya. And in Anya, they used the the music of Rachmaninoff, uh, because that was part of, of what they did. They took famous composers and adapted their music with their lyrics, and that's what Kismet was in Song of Norway also. So Mr. Lester sent me to New York to audition, and I auditioned for George Abbott and for Wright and Forrest, and I got the starring role of Anastasia, and I played opposite Lillian Gish, who was the Dowager Empress in our production of uh, Anya. And that was, that was the treat of a lifetime to work with her. Oh, yes. And going back briefly to this Guys and Dolls that you did in Hollywood, what did you sort of learn from these veterans like Shelley Berman and Dan Daly 
who you were working with here? Right. Well, Dan Daly, I, I didn't know what it meant to upstage someone. And upstaging means that you take the attention away from another actor on stage when you shouldn't be. Yeah. Um, you know, and some actors are notorious for having done that. They play tricks to get the audience to look at them. And when somebody is doing their big moment, uh, suddenly the audience is distracted. Well, that's impolite. That's a no-no in theater. And I didn't know it, but Shelley Berman was upset because I was standing on my upstage foot, which um. made him turn his face sort of upstage in order to address me. And I didn't know what that meant. And so Dan Daly said, and he was Guy Masterson, and he said, well, let me, let me explain this to you. He said, I'm going to show you. And so we did a scene of ours, and he just kept turning around so he was backing upstage, and he got me so finally I was trying to talk to him, and my back was to the audience. And he said, now have you learned something? And I thought, oh, I get it. That's what I was doing. So they, they were wonderful to me. I mean, Shelley just couldn't have been nicer, and Dan Daly was a prince. Yeah. And uh, so they they helped me in my first production to understand what you can do and what you can't do. Yeah. So, And I never forgot it. I was deeply grateful to them. And what was it about your performing style that you think has matched to a lot of shows from the golden age of Broadway, especially? Well, I, 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 first of all, I love the medium so much that I've even done several roles that, that didn't succeed, but I felt they were, they were right when I did them. One was the musical version of Ari, of yes. Exodus. And uh, so we had Leon Uris suddenly as a playwright, not a, not a novelist, and uh, a friend of his who had written the score. But I played Kitty Fremont to uh, the character, the love interest to the character for Ari. And it was, it was unfortunate that Mr. Yours did not understand the, the dynamics of writing drama for stage and so the show really lacked, uh, it lacked a, a playwright. And also the, it would have been nice if it had been Richard Rogers writing the score. So the show came into Broadway and it lasted about three weeks, which was unfortunate. But I think all of the heroines that I played, I loved the characters. And uh, certainly anything Rogers and Hammerstein wrote, I just loved doing because I loved the music. And I was lucky enough that Richard Rogers was still alive, and I knew him. I would love to have met Oscar Hammerstein, but I didn't. Um, but Richard Rogers picked me for Mrs. Anna in the in the revival of The King and I in 1977. And so I was picked to play opposite Ewell Brenner. And that, of course, was a great experience because I was playing with the greatest king. I mean, he had a patent on, certainly on that role, that uh, was his greatest success. Yeah. And it was wonderful to work with him. Yeah. And you were talking about some of the shows that were not quite as successful, which brings me to ask you, what is your opinion on critics, both of theater and of film? Um, 
critics in, in the theater, I mean, I, I think it's probably true of all of them. You kind of, certainly on Broadway, you prayed that he had a good dinner, that he had, I say he, it could be she, um, but that the critic had not had an argument with his spouse <laughs> yeah. um, before coming to the theater. I mean, a lot of things covered, covered their review, and you were a victim to it. Um, the first show that I did, Anya, Walter Kerr was the famous New York Times critic, and he was not favorable to the show. But it wasn't the show, it was George Abbott, because mm-hmm. George Abbott, who was the great, great director of all time of Broadway, and uh, he had directed a show that that Walter Kerr's wife had written, Please Don't Eat the Daisies. And uh, Walter Kerr had a running uh, argument with him about the way it was presented because the show was not successful. And so he always had a grudge and held it against George Abbott. So when this show opened, he had a perfect opportunity to take Mr. Abbott to task, which he did. And uh, it was sad because the show suffered. And also there was a newspaper strike. They were redoing the subway, or they were doing the subway on 6th Avenue, and that's where the Ziegfeld Theater was, which is where we where, where we housed Anya. And uh, so it had a lot of problems. You know, it was just before Christmas, and people couldn't get to the theater, and when they did, they had to walk over boarded street in order to get into the theater. So it it did not have a great success, but people there were more people there the closing night than there were opening night. People for years would come up to me and say, "What happened? That was such a beautiful show." So you know you have many experiences. Uh, critics for film um, films is a very interesting experience because you don't you don't see your review right away and you don't feel the effects of the review right away because you make a movie and then it goes through a whole process of maybe two years before it's released. Yes. And so, and it has been, maybe your best scene has been cut and it's on the cutting room floor by the time an audience sees it or a critic sees it. So it's a totally different experience. You kind of do a film and then walk away and kind of forget about it because you're not going to know anything about it for a couple of years. So it's always a surprise with a film. And do you think that you usually have a good sense of whether something will be successful or? Um, I think, I think we usually know in our heart of hearts whether it's going to succeed or not. Um, I was in a, in a Broadway show standing backstage with the man who was playing my father and it was the the second act, and the audience was howling and laughing and loving it. And he turned to me and he said, boy, we're a hit. And I said, I don't think we are. I feel cold spots. Where the critics are sitting, I just feel it's those spots are cold. And I was right, and he was wrong. Yeah. And the audience loved it, but the critics didn't. And I should remember the name of the show, and I can't. Was it The Engagement Baby? Engagement baby, thank oh. you. Gosh, I wouldn't have come up with that. The engagement baby, that was it. Oh yeah. 
And I'd love to ask more about your own collaboration with George Abbott on Anyan, what it was like to be directed by him. It was wonderful. I mean, he was he was a genius. Uh, perhaps frustrating with the subject matter of Anastasia, because he was, it, for comedy, there was no one better than George Abbott. But he even admitted after Anya closed that he had, what was on the stage was his, and that he, if there was a mistake, he had made it. And he just, when there was a very emotional, confrontational scene between uh, Lillian Gish and me, it's the Dowager Empress, and Anastasia, when the Dowager Empress finally, finally accepts her as her granddaughter and says, yes, you are Anastasia. And it's very emotional. And we would work on it in, in rehearsal, and Mr. Abbott would pick up his hat and coat, and he would leave rehearsal. And I finally asked him one day, I said, are you not going to direct us in this theme? Because we need you. And he said, no, it's too emotional for me. Oh. Which always struck me as being so interesting that, that he just simply couldn't face the emotion of that scene, so he left it up to us. So we staged it. And you've worked with a lot of great directors in different mediums, and what do you sort of look for in a director? What makes a good director to you? Well, I look for a director who who is helpful. Um, some directors don't direct actors. They, they kind of, certainly in television it happens, not so much in Broadway, but in television it certainly does, where time is of the essence, and time is money. Yeah. And so the director very often is just trying to get the film in on time, He's trying to get it in so that it doesn't cost more than it's supposed to cost. So he merely, we had, a, we had a director on General Hospital at one point who laid um, masking tape in a scene and he put numbers on it, like one, two, three, four. And if your character was number one, you landed on the yellow strips that were number one. And that was all he cared about was that you landed on your strip when you had to say a certain line because he had the camera lined up for that shot. And if everybody did what they were supposed to do, he got it in one shot. So then he was on time. He saves money for the, for the producers and he's successful. Yeah. But there was no time to say, you know, you might want to try that again and not be so emotional. Or you may uh, want to think of it in a different way that Maybe you're not resentful. Maybe you're really grateful for what that character is saying to you or help that they're giving. So you look for that in a director, but you don't always get it. Um, certainly, I've, I've been lucky there, too, because I've had wonderful directors. Yeah. And certainly on Broadway, just wonderful directors who were... There was a man who directed... Uh, he did not direct... The, they finished King and I, on Broadway, but he had us on the road, and then he couldn't do the the final because of illness. But he was just superb, and his name was John Fernley. He was wonderful, and uh, 
certainly John Ford was great. Yeah. Sam Fuller was wonderful. All very different, but all very helpful in their own way. And I'd love to talk more about John Ford and Samuel Fuller, who I'm sure everyone must want to know about, but since they are such great movie directors. Um, he, you know, he was a poet with a camera, and he only used one camera. He didn't do what a lot of other directors do with multiple cameras and zoom shots and crane shots and all of that. John Ford, if you look at any movie of his, you could stop the movie at any time, take that frame and frame it, and it would be a perfect, perfectly balanced picture. He, 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 was, he literally knew every scene that he was shooting. He knew exactly how much film to use because he wanted to save himself. He gave the producers only what they could use. He didn't give them anything to cut. So he sort of controlled that last cut himself just by by knowing what he was doing and by by shooting only what was necessary. So, I mean, he, he was he was great. Sam Fuller was so uninhibited, so childlike in many ways, but brilliant. He wrote, directed, even produced most of his movies and uh certainly the two that i did with him he was wonderful he he would whisper in your ear he would tell you take more time trust yourself uh do your follow your instinct you're right um or then he would have a, a wonderful direction like well, why don't you hold that wedding dress at the end where the character had killed her future husband was holding her wedding dress and the realization that he was not who she thought he was. Um, that was Sammy. Sammy said, just take your time. I'll wait. The camera will wait. And many times we, we later think, gee, I should have taken more time with that shot. But you feel that for, for whatever reason in your enactment of something that you, you can't take more time. And he just gave you the liberty to follow your instinct, and if your instinct might not be in a certain area, he helped you with his. So he was, Sam was, was a character. He carried a, a pistol in his on his hip, oh. and every now and then he had blanks in it, but he would shoot it off. And I asked him, I said, why do you do that? Why do you shoot that gun off? He said, well, I wanted your attention. So, I mean, he was a character. But he was wonderful to work with. And so was John Ford. I mean, he was a character. Yeah. They, they're all these wonderful, eccentric, um, interesting, brilliant people. And you're lucky enough to work with them. And what did you like about taking on these much darker roles in some of Samuel Fuller's films? I mean, he, he offered me those roles. Yeah. He wrote the Naked Kiss for me, um, and I thought they were challenging. I thought they were, I really thought Shock Corridor was a wonderful story and uh, a different kind of challenge from the snow-driven, pure characters that I usually play. Yeah. Um, so I enjoyed the challenge, and uh, certainly the Naked Kiss was a challenge, 
and uh, I've just been amazed at the success of that film over the years, that it has become really a an icon in in uh, that genre of film. And were there movies or Broadway shows you can remember that you either turned down or got very close to playing something but ended up not happening? Oh, yeah. We all have those stories where we think we know better. And if we just would listen to our advisors, we do them. Um, one was 1776 on Broadway. Oh. But I just turned it down. I didn't feel the part was big enough. I don't know what I thought. But I, I made a mistake because I should have done it and I wish I had. It would have been fun to do. Uh, and then there's some that I accepted that I wish I hadn't done too. Like maybe, I, you know, Ari Exodus, which just started out not working and it it was obvious that it wasn't going to work, but you you feel loyal to a cast, you feel loyal to your decision to commitment to be in something. And for me to walk away is very difficult. Yeah. So. And among the great film actors who you worked with was John Wayne, and I'd love to talk about him. John Wayne was exactly who you think he was. He was as big in real life as he was on the screen. He was, he, he loved people, he loved his fans, he worked hard. He was serious about acting. He he loved John Ford. John Ford was like his football coach, and uh, he he trusted him. He if he thought he had displeased him, uh, and Pappy Ford was known to play little tricks on actors to get them to feel bad, so they added a little emotion in a scene. And uh, Duke Wynn was absolutely a victim to that many times um, but John Ford got the best performance out of him but he was he was a very special human being he was as I say he was as big in life as he was on the screen and he would come back after a whole day of you know shooting in the swamps and we were swimming our horses and mud climbing up mud banks and I mean we were exhausted by the end of the day doing the horse soldiers, horse and he would come back to this little motel that we were staying in, in Natchitoches, Louisiana, and he would stand for maybe an hour with young people, fans who were waiting to talk to him, and uh, I heard one young boy one day ask him, he said, Mr. Wayne, could you give me some advice? You know, I'd like to able to take the car on Saturday night, but my dad won't let me do it. And I guess he had just started driving. And John Wayne stood for a long moment and thought about it. And he said, well, let me ask you something. When's the last time you offered to wash that car? And the boy sort of looked at it. And then he said, and as a matter of fact, when's the last time you told your dad you loved him? And that boy realized what he was saying to him. And he went away with probably the best advice any young 16-year-old could possibly get from anybody in his relationship with his father. And, and you know, make, I'm sure he went home and thought about washing the car, and I bet he got the car on Saturday night. But those were the, the simple little things that John Wayne would do that were 
of utmost importance to somebody that he talked to. And I mean, he had, he just had conversation for people that was, that was real conversation because he loved people and he loved his family, his sons and daughters. I mean, they just absolutely adored their father and for good reason. He, they came to visit on location and then over the years we've remained friends and I would go to parties at his house and to see the interaction between him and his family was always delightful because it was pure love and uh, and that's the kind of relationship he had with his audience and certainly with the actors in the Ford company that he usually worked in um, the actors all loved each other and they were good friends and fun to be with and did you think of it as that at that time as a golden age of Hollywood and would you define it that way now um yes yeah, I think it was. It was simpler. It was, uh, you had the heads of studios instead of actors having to fend for themselves. Now an actor can't really build a big career unless he gets very successful because he has to do his own PR. He had, And a studio used to do that for you. A studio insured you. They protected you. Somebody got in trouble. Somehow the studio managed to keep it quiet most of the time. Um, and they would put you in movie after movie after movie. So an audience, they built you as a star. Today, getting movie after movie after movie is hard work. Yeah. And uh, so it's a totally different system and a different process today. And uh, I keep saying, somebody sent me Frank Sinatra singing Send in the Clowns. And with it, they they had Red Skelton, they had Jackie Gleason, or the, the real comics, uh, Carol Burnett of yesteryear, of kind of the golden time of, of, of uh, comedy. And you look at, I looked at that, and my answer back to the person who sent it to me was, where are they? Where are they today? Yeah. I mean, music groups don't even have Frank Sinatra. Who's who's a singer today? They have a name. The who, the what, the whatever. Yeah. Um, you know, and then so you don't have Dean Martin and Frank Sinatra and the people that you could hear two notes that you'd know exactly who it was. Judy Garland. Um, so it's a different time. That was a different a different place, a different time, and golden. Yes, I think it was. It was wonderful. Yeah, yeah. And one thing you did around this time was you appeared in sort of guest spots on many TV shows, and one I think people will want to hear about is Perry Mason, which you did quite a few times. Mm-hmm. Isn't that fun? I mean, <laughs> I did those, and I love doing them, but I never realized I hear it from people all the time. I get fan mail from people who see Perry Mason. But that was, oh, to work with Raymond Burr was fabulous. And our producer, Gail, gosh, I can't remember her name. She was she was a movie actress, too. Um, but she was the producer, and she did the casting, and it was always wonderful that she she always wanted me to do the show. And the first musical show they did 
they asked me to do it where I, Perry Mason went to a nightclub and I was the nightclub singer. Oh. So I actually sang on the show. And that was the very first time they'd ever done anything musical. Um, and I loved working with Raymond Burr because he was a practical joker. Oh. And oh, he was, he, he, Barbara Hale had just had her dressing room redone and it was all beautiful and pink and soft and feminine. And the bathroom was beautiful and brand new toilet seats and everything. I mean, it was just, she said it was heaven. And she went out on set to do what she had to do and couldn't wait to get back to this beautiful, lovely dressing room. She came back and it had been painted black, <laughs> black rugs. And in the bathroom on this lovely new beautiful toilet seat were, were roses with the rose and the, the bloom of the rose pointing down into the bowl and it had been painted black and the roses were black and she just broke down and cried she said I I couldn't believe it and it was Raymond Burr and he had a crew standing by who not only they picked up the rug they laid it on top of this beautiful pink rug and they immediately painted they did it back exactly the way it was and then he had caterers from the brown derby to, to bring in pheasant under glass or whatever it was and he wanted her to have dinner with it oh. so i mean he he did crazy things and one day my my front door had a new brass knocker on it and it had it had a saying on it in Latin that said, si noli tintanari, don't ring, oh, I can't remember it. I'm gonna paraphrase it. But it was, if you, if you can't ring, if you can't sing, don't ring or something, I can't remember. But it was a saying like that. So I immediately went down and got a brass knocker and I had it painted, all done in black, and I had it put on his dressing room door I never mentioned my front door of my house on Beverly Drive, but I had this knocker put on his door. He never mentioned it. Oh. Never, never acknowledged it. So the fact that I hadn't acknowledged mine, he never gave me, he never gave me the satisfaction of saying, did you do that to my door? So I never gave him the satisfaction. But the famous one about him that he did, I think is so funny. He was going to have abdominal surgery. And somewhere between the prepping for the operation, you know, when they shave your abdomen and get you all ready for the surgery, and the actual moment when they removed the sheet in surgery, when they wheeled him in, and by now he was anesthetized, they wheeled him into surgery, and when they took the sheet off, he had managed to write in pen, on, on marker pen, on his stomach, don't open it until Christmas. <laughs> so he was, he was just incorrigible, but mm -hmm. a lot of fun. And he was a consummate actor. He was a fabulous actor to work with. So I loved those shows. And I was always the innocent lady that ended up in the witness box confessing to the crime, which yeah. was always kind of fun. And I'd love to talk about a TV show you did an appearance on later, too, in your career, which I 
love this episode of Frasier, where you played a piano teacher. Yes. And what was that sort of experience like? Well, uh, first of all, they were wonderful to work with, too, and the writers were so brilliant. And the director and the producer, I mean, everybody on that show, they were all responsible for it being as brilliant as it was and as successful as it was. My character was Frasier always felt bad because he had his first sexual experience had been with his piano teacher. And he evidently had left very abruptly, never said goodbye to her, uh, never kind of reconciled his relationship with her. So he felt he wanted to go back to Seattle and find her and tell her that, you know, that she had started him out right in his life. So he goes back and there was a wonderful Broadway actress playing my mother. She played the mother to my character. And so when he came up to the screen door, thinking he was at the house of his music teacher that he'd had his first sexual experience with, lo, those many years ago, he, the first person who answers the door is his mother, and he, is her mother. And he sees her through the screen door and he thinks, oh my, she really has aged a lot. So he has a whole scene in the beginning with the mother saying, uh, do you remember when when we did? And she she's now at an age where she doesn't quite remember, and she says, we did. <laughs> and so it's a very funny scene. Yeah. And then I walk, my character walks into the scene, and he realizes, oh my God, I've been talking to the mother, and this was my music teacher. So the scenes that he and I had were just hysterical. And... Yeah. Uh, the very end is he's there to, I don't know if he's really thinking that maybe they could rekindle and have one more night together, but he asks her if she would like to go for coffee, and this absolute hunk walks in the door, this guy who is about 20 years younger than she, but beautiful, and he walks in and he says, are you ready for our date? And when Frazier has just asked her to go for coffee, and she turns around, she says, "I'm sorry, I didn't, I didn't like old men then, and I still don't," and leaves. And so, yeah. But it was great fun, and it was wonderful to do that show with such experienced, great actors. Yeah. Because anything you gave to them, they just gave it right back to you, and it was wonderful. It was a, it was a really fun experience. And of all of your many screen appearances, which is your favorite to watch? Well, I don't like to watch myself, so I don't watch my films. Uh, I've never seen A Perfect Murder, which was just a few years ago, with Gwyneth Paltrow and Michael Douglas. Uh, I've never seen it, and I love them, but I just can't, I don't know, watching myself on the screen, I always, I always see things that I wish I hadn't done and things I wish I could go back and redo. And that's the beauty of stage as opposed to film, is that if you make a discovery one night, you think, oh boy, I've got tomorrow night, I can go back, I can play with that, I can try it out, see if it works. Um, with film, once you do it, it's there forever. Yes. And uh, so watching my films, I think probably I enjoy 
watching the horse soldiers just because I loved everybody so much and I loved God, even the stuntmen that I worked with were so wonderful and so that's a a wonderful memory going back to to a happy, happy time in my life. And before we talk about more theater things, I'd love to just ask about one more movie, which is Fate is the Hunter with Nancy Kwan and Wally Coxon. Right. All these great actors. Yeah, and, and Glenn Ford, uh, yeah. who also was somebody that I just watched with fascination because he was a consummate film actor. He knew exactly what he was doing when he stood in front of the camera. He knew... He, he just knew where to look, how to look, how to do it, and it was seamless. He was a well-schooled film actor that you could learn a lot from. And he was a very nice man, gentleman to work with and a gentleman to know. He was lovely. Yes, yeah. And after this, could you identify a moment where you made a decision to focus more on your stage career? Um, well, I went to New York to do Anya, and it was a troubled, emotional time of my life because I was getting a divorce, and I kind of enjoyed being close to my parents. Yeah. And uh, so I stayed. I didn't rush back to Hollywood when Anya closed. And fortunately, Richard Rogers, who, as you know, was the composer of Sound of Music, the composer yeah. of The King and I at South Pacific, all those wonderful shows. He he saw the show with his son-in-law, and they then offered me, when the show closed, they offered me a role in a production. Mr. Rogers didn't write it, but he was producing it that summer at Lincoln Center, and it was Showboat. And his partner, Oscar Hammerstein, had written the lyrics to it, and then Jerome Kern had written the music. And so they wanted me to be in the show, and they wanted me to play the role of Julie, which was the Helen Morgan role. And she sings really just two songs, Fish Gotta Swim, Birds Gotta Fly, Can't Help Loving That Man of Mine, and Bill. And uh, so I thought... I. I told them, I said, gee, I, I would think I would play Marigold, M Magnolia, who is the young Ange ingenue in the show. And they said, no, nope, we want you to play Julie. And they said, she has black hair, and she sings torch songs. And they said, that's what we want you to do. And Mr. Rogers said, just learn a lesson from me. Do what I want you to do, and don't question it. So I did, and I was forever grateful that I had, because... Opening night, it was just such a, an incredible experience to stop the show yeah. with uh, Bill when I sang it, and uh, it was it was the kind of the really big entree for me as far as Broadway was concerned, and uh, so I was forever grateful to Mr. Rogers for that opportunity. And Showboat led then to other shows, and it led to finally The King and I. Yes, yes. And I'd love to ask about your acting process with this character because it was something that you didn't originally think you wanted to play. Well, it was a challenge because I just never saw myself playing that role and uh, preparing for it was a challenge. And uh, But playing it 
was just the most glorious experience to be accepted by an audience like that with that kind of enthusiasm and and it was uh, it opened up another world for me yeah. you know that I suddenly I wasn't little Miss Magnolia I was actually this woman and uh, an adult woman so it was it was a wonderful experience and you were working with a great cast on this too, like Barbara Cook and Rosetta Lenoir, and on the tour, Margaret Hamilton, and... Oh yeah, Margaret Hamilton. Isn't that fun? I got to work with Lillian Gish, and then I got to work with Margaret Hamilton. Just yeah. two great female stars from way long ago. And both of them were wonderful. David Wayne couldn't have been a better Captain Andy. And uh, certainly Barbara Cook was one of my favorite favorite friends and certainly favorite actresses, Broadway actresses. So the whole cast was fabulous. And you know, the director was Larry Kasha, uh, who had not really had great renown on Broadway, but did a lot in television. So yes. He was well known. And that, that was terrific. And Ron Field was the choreographer. He was well known before Michael Bennett on Broadway, and so it was a it was a great experience. And around this time, you did a lot of leading roles in shows in off Broadway or in stock or up touring and things like that. But is there one that you didn't get to do, but that you wanted to do, or that you would still want to do? Yes, I would love to have done Little Night Music, oh. and it just eluded me. I I was offered the show a couple of times. To do not on Broadway, but uh, to do elsewhere. And I just never had a chance. I was never available, never could do it. And I've always loved that show. Yeah. And I, if I had an opportunity to do it, I would do it. And you also did a few shows at City Center around this time, including one with Agnes DeMille. And what was it like to be working with her? Another great creator. She was wonderful. Um, it, it, she, 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 she was. She only came in and consulted and left. So um, she kind of put the finishing touches. The same thing happened in the King and I. They brought Jerome Robbins in the last forty-eight hours before we before we opened, and he did what they call a cleanup. But he just sat in the audience and made notes. Came back and gave us the notes and the night before we before we opened uh, before we had our big opening night the last night before he was in the audience and i had just gotten out of the hospital i had meningitis oh. and they didn't think i was going to make it mr rogers would come to my hospital room door and say it all wrapped in paper because i was contagious and he would stand in the doorway wrapped in paper and he would say get well, we'll wait, and then he would leave. And he would send his nurse back with smoked salmon. So um, he, he gave me the confidence that they were going to wait, but I managed to get back on the show in two weeks, but I was so weak. Oh. And uh, the night before we opened, I, in the last scene, the little girl came down to Mrs. Anna, the king was dying, and everybody was on stage. And she reads a letter, please do not go, Mrs. Anna. And it's a heartbreaking moment. And Mrs. Anna 
goes down on her knees to give the little girl a hug. Well, I went down on my knees and I gave her the hug, but I was too weak to get up. Oh. And the hoop skirt was too heavy. And it was like a giant plunger. I just thought, oh my gosh, I can't get up. And I put my hand on the little girl's shoulder. She went down to the floor because she didn't know how to support me. And I thought, the crawl home doesn't like Mrs. On at this moment. The king is dying. He can't get off his deathbed. How am I going to get up? And I heard Jerome Robbins in the fifth row saying, get up, Connie, get up. <laughs> and finally, it was the king's first wife, Lady Tiong, who was just absolutely wonderful. And she came down and just got me under the arm and pulled me up. And so I got up. But that was that was an interesting experience. But anyway, we brought Jerome Robbins in to to do that last minute cleanup too. So anytime they would bring someone like Jerome Robbins at the mill, um, people like that, they would bring them in for consultation, really. Yeah, yeah. And you also played the role of Anna in The King and I at City Center before you did it on Broadway with Yul Brynner. And what was it like to be working with Michael Kermoyan, who was, I believe, the king at City Center? Yes, he was. Oh, Michael was one of my favorite friends. He, first when we started Anya, uh, the first Broadway show that I did, um, and that was the Anastasia with Lillian Gish, yeah. we had George London, who was the famous basso from the Metropolitan Opera. And he was going to play Bunyin, the titled character, in Anastasia. And he had a tragic moment, no one quite knows why, but he lost his voice. Oh. And he never sang again. And so at we were about three weeks into rehearsal, and they needed a new star. And so Michael was his understudy, and they put him in, and they liked him so much that they had him open in the show. And so I had gone through that experience with Michael. And then when they had us do The King and I at, at City Center, it was, you know, I was working with such a good friend, and he was so good. Yeah. And he probably had the best basso voice on Broadway ever. I mean, his, his singing voice was extraordinary. And he was just such a beautiful human being. So I loved, I loved doing that with him. And in what ways did it change when it was with him versus with Yul Brynner? Well, Yul Brynner, you know, I did it with John Cullum also. Oh. And John is a fabulous actor and Broadway star. Yeah. And uh, Yul had a patent on that role. He just, he understood that king he lived his life as if he were the king. Uh, he, he, he truly believed. He, he's the closest to anyone I've ever seen who almost made his life like that character. He, he married Jacqueline, his French wife. They adopted two Vietnamese children, so now he had Oriental children. He then divorced Jacqueline and married a wonderful girl, Kathy, who was a dancer, or an Asian dancer, in the show. So now, oh. if he had been young enough and had been able to father a child, 
with her, he would have produced an Oriental child. Yeah. Kind of would have proved that he was proven that he was the king. Yeah. But he he lived his life like he was the king, and that's what made him so much fun. He was bigger than life. He had his limousine was brought into the theater at the Eurus Theater for three years there on Broadway. It was in a freight elevator, came up to the stage level, and he, when he finished the show and was leaving the theater, he got into that beautiful big limousine, went down in the elevator, and drove out through his fans who were waiting outside in this beautiful big limousine. And I asked him one day, you know, he was criticized for being difficult, but he wasn't difficult. Everything had a reason. And I asked him, I said, why do you demand that you have this year's special limousine for every show that we do? And he said, my darling, can you imagine what a producer would do to me if I didn't have that specifically in my contract? They would send a little Volkswagen, and I would drive out through my fans in the Volkswagen, a little Beetle. And would that be kingly? No. So... I've demanded that, and that's what I have, but it's part of the show. And he also, he was criticized for having his dressing room brown. Yeah. Everything was brown, and it was. The walls were painted brown, rug was brown, all of the furniture that you sat on in his dressing room was all brown. And I said, okay, why did you demand the brown? And he said, my darling, I put on body makeup. And I'm in body makeup. And I'm also very fastidious. I don't want to sit on something and get body makeup on it that people can see. So this way, if I do happen to sit down and there's a little body makeup, I'm not, no one is going to see that I've soiled the, the chair or whatever. So he had a reason for everything he did. Yes. And so he wasn't, he wasn't difficult. He just knew how, he knew how to present himself to an audience and please an audience and to his fans. And so he maintained that image. Yeah. So he was, he was fascinating. Oh, yeah. And did you ever see a more sort of temperamental side of him that some people have talked about? Um, no, because even on stage, uh, the fire alarm went off and we were right in the middle of, of a scene. And the audience, of course, knew it was a fire alarm, and the orchestra knew it. And, of course, there's that panic immediately. And he just stayed in character, and but he was angry at the producers. That shouldn't have happened. And he stormed off stage as the king, and I saw him put his leg up on the wall in the wings, and he pulled that fire alarm out of the wall, stopped it from wailing, brought it right out on stage and put it down and said, there, Mrs. Zana, I have solved the problem. Oh. And the audience laughed and applauded. The orchestra enjoyed it. But, I mean, he just, and somebody might say, well, you know what he did? He went over and pulled that out of the wall and brought it on stage in a temper tantrum. That wasn't it. He had a reason for doing that. It was a perfect way to put the audience at ease. Yeah. So people weren't worrying that the theater was going to burn down with them. Uh, and he was only temperamental with actors when somebody would get to the to the stage door at half hour 
having been at dinner with people or something, and rush in and try to get ready for the show and rush on the show. He said, no, you, you come to the theater as a professional. You come an hour before the show. Yeah. You come to the theater, you get ready, you're ready for the curtain to go up. Or in a show, if somebody's tired or, I don't know, sometimes people do that, um, and they just sort of don't really work hard, he would see to it that they didn't come back. And somebody would say, well, he's so temperamental. No, he gave 150% of himself, and he expected you to give at least 100 Yeah. And I was all for it. I, I thought he was wonderful. He maintained a wonderful discipline and a respect for what we were doing. We had meetings with the cast very often. He would give notes. So it kind of kept people from getting bored and or feeling that they'd done as much as they can do. He would give them new projects to kind of work on in the show. So it kept the show alive. And it was, he was wonderful. It was all professional. So I didn't see him be difficult or temperamental unless he had a reason. I, I know that one night, the first evening that Ewell and I had, but when they, they shipped my hoops, went to London, and I was faced with those wonderful, beautiful big dresses, but nothing to build them out. We were in Indianapolis, and Yule had had just a remarkable laryngitis. He was mute. He couldn't speak. And I had no hoops for my gowns. And so they had his son rock in the pit reading the script so he could gesture on stage. And so the sound was his son rock who sounded like him. And I had the girls backstage all took clothes hangers and they they joined them together with ribbons and string and made hoops out of out of uh, hangers for me to put under my dresses so at least they wouldn't drag on the floor. But I was out there with with hangers, coat hangers, under my dresses. And uh, I, I told Mr. Binner at that time, I said, look, if I don't sit down, you just have to understand, I don't know what I'm sitting on because I have coat hangers under my dresses. And after playing this role for three years, including the pre-Broadway tour and then Broadway and then the mm -hmm. post-tour, how did you sort of avoid getting stale in the part and how did you keep it fresh for you? Well, that was thanks to, to Yul Brynner, too. But, you know, it's never the same show. Yeah. People say, but you're doing the same show day after day after day. That's not true. It's a different audience. They give you a different vibration. They give you a different sense of it. You're 24 hours older. You're not the same person you were the day before. Um, you have new challenges, and you find them, uh, as I said before, that, you know, you, you'll suddenly have an idea in a scene, which is the beauty of rehearsal for things, is that in rehearsal you find moments. Well, it happens on stage, too, that suddenly something will occur to you that you think, oh, that's what that line means. Can't wait to go back and do that again. Yeah. So it always stayed fresh for me. But also, I went to the theater at 5. Yul Brynner went to the theater at 5. We met in his dressing room. We had tea. And we discussed the night before. And he would very often say, you know, darling, I think if we try this or we try that, this might be a little better or this might 
work, let's try it. And if I had an idea, I learned very early on how to deal with the king, with Yul Brynner, <laughs> was that I never told him I had an idea. Yeah. I would always say, do you remember in rehearsal, you had this wonderful idea, would you like to try it now? And he would say, well, hmm, tell me about it. So I would tell him my idea as his idea, and he would say, well, let's try it. And that was how I could manage to get a new idea into it, because he did have an ego. Yes. And he, he might say, oh, no, if that was your idea, no, we won't do that. Yes. So, so you learn to deal with him as the king, and of course that was the childlike quality that's so endearing about the king and the king and I is that he, it's his idea. Yeah. And, you know, so it was, it, 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 it was a wonderful experience in every way. It was a challenge, but what a beautiful journey we went on. Yeah. And even he loved to tell stories. And after the show, my daughter and I would go in with my little dog, Julie, and we would have a glass of wine with, with Yul Brynner. And he would, I always said he would suddenly start to tell us a story about his early years in Peking or whatever. And uh, he would start off on this journey, the music would sort of play in your head. And you'd step on this magic carpet, and away you would go. And my husband very often would say, I don't think that's true. I said, I don't care. It's a beautiful story. It was wonderful. It was well told. Yeah. So. And what do you think it was that made this production so successful? Oh, I think the I think the world was ready for the King and I at that time, yeah. and a revival. You know, we've all seen the popularity of of revivals, and that was certainly one of the first ones that they did revive. And it's such a beautiful show; people wanted to see it again. I have like they came to me and said, you know, when I was a little boy, my father brought me to see the show when Yul Brynner was doing it with maybe Gertrude Lawrence or whatever. I had many young men come to me, and I had a PR man at General Hospital recently who came to me and said, you know, my very first experience in theater was my father brought me to see The King and I, and you were Mrs. Anna. And so the show was successful because, A, it's a beautiful show, beautifully produced, and beautifully performed. People had an opportunity to see Yul Brynner do it. And uh, all of those ingredients made for a very successful run. And people did love it. Yeah. And so they promoted it and they they loved promoting it and enjoyed coming back and seeing it many times. So it was it's a very special show. So I'm always curious about shows that closed on the road. And for you, that experience was Dumas and Son, I believe it was, with Hermione Gingold and Edward Everett Horton. What was this show about would be the first thing I'm curious to know. That show was called Dumas Son. And it was produced by the man I talked about before, Edwin Lester, at the Music Center. Now they have the Dorothy Chandler pavilion in this great, wonderful art center when we did that, and it was Wright and Forrest, the same composing team who did Anya and Kismet Song of Norway, 
And this time they took the music of Saint-Saëns, which is not not that easy to sing. Um, and so the score was difficult. Uh, it was a beautiful show. It was the costumes, Freddie Whittop, who was noted for gorgeous gowns and beautiful fabrics. And so the show was handsome. Yeah. And uh, it, it was about Dumas, Père and Dumas fils. And uh, we had, they had Inia Tibiata, who was a Maori. He was from Australia, played uh, Dumas Père and Frank Peretta, who was a glorious tenor, played Dumas fils. And I played the Lady of the Camellias. And uh, unfortunately, I kind of, with the last show, I died two times. Because she, of course, dies of consumption in the show, and uh, so we we died as the show also with our oh. last show in San Francisco. The show they just decided not to take it to Broadway. They felt that it was not going to fare well, but it was a beautiful show. It probably wasn't a great show. Yeah, yeah. And at what point during this process of? your stage career, did Project Connie come about, which was your charity? Um, Project Connie was a result. You know, my husband, John Gavin, was the U.S. ambassador to Mexico. He was appointed ambassador by Ronald Reagan, so it was in the 80s. And uh, I went down as much as I could. I was doing the television series Capital in Los Angeles at that time, and so I would go down whenever I could. We had in 1985 the, the great earthquake in Mexico City, and many people, thousands of people died, and literally thousands of children were, were left uh, abandoned, left orphaned. Yeah. And so I was in the street with the Red Cross and working as much as I could to help and uh, so I formed this organization called Project Connie, and it was under the peace organization that was the umbrella for the for the project. And I raised money from friends of mine. I went to the Disney's, and I went to other people up here um, in Los Angeles, and brought money down. And then I went to friends in the Mexican community that I knew who, who had money and they gave me money. And we built an orphanage uh, in which we, this, the sisters were wonderful, they took it over. So we had the nuns running the orphanage and uh, there was a wonderful lady who, who was the mother superior who really ran it like a very tight ship. And we've just found these children who had, suddenly their parents died and they had no one and they had nothing. Uh, and then we found many children, a young soccer player who lost both legs at the trunk of his body. So he lost his legs from the thighs down and he wanted to walk again. And uh, I brought him to Los Angeles, to UCLA. And we found that with prostheses, he probably, he couldn't really walk again. So we, we worked with him in rehab and got him really proficient on a skateboard. Oh. And he now has a big 
computer company in Mexico City and oh. uh, does it all on a skateboard. But so we, we found children who needed help. We also found a man who, in the earthquake, who had lost his, he sold tomatoes on the corner in Mexico City and he lost everything. So we got donations and we bought him a new business. We got him a new big stand so he could sell other things plus his tomatoes and he went back in business. But So that's that was what Project Connie was and that's what we did. I found, through a social worker, found me, who as the wife of the U.S. ambassador, she had a man who had lost his wife, had four daughters, and he wanted to see only the wife of the U.S. ambassador. So I went to see him and in a very poor neighborhood and walked down an alley with three of the most adorable girls in shoes that were too big for their feet, dresses that were, had been handed down, but they were pristine and clean and darling, and took me down to this clean green door in the alley, and this handsome man with a baby girl in his arms opened the door and uh, brought me in, sat me down, and explained what his problem was, that his wife had been killed in the earthquake, she was a maid, and the building had collapsed and killed her in the process, and left him with these four daughters. And he had leukemia and didn't expect to live very long. And he was 33 years old, and he wanted me to promise him that I would not allow his daughters, when he died, to be separated, and that I would find them a home that would adopt all four girls in the United States. And he took me in his arms, and I said, I'll, I'll do it. And uh, I firmly believed that I could do it. And in a few months, he did die, and I had the girls, so I put them in a convent and while to take care of them while I went out and tried to find parents. And I went on television, Gary Collins, and um, I remember who else it was, on an afternoon TV show were wonderful, and I went on the show and explained what it was in the avalanche of mail that we got from that appearance uh, from people who said, I will adopt all four girls. I want all four girls. And so one was a speechwriter at the White House who had nine children. Oh. His wife was expecting the 10th, and they wanted to adopt the four girls. <laughs> and I felt... That was not fair to his wife. <laughs> she, she needed to take care of the 10 that she, she, she had. Um, but a wonderful letter just sort of glistened on top of the pile, and my assistants and I read the letter and felt this, this was perfect, and it was. It's a lovely couple. He was a lawyer in Los Angeles, and uh, he and his wife had two children, the same ages as the girls, and I... Uh, they wanted to adopt these four girls. So we went on a process of a year and a half of negotiating for, with all the paperwork that had the, you know, that it entails for Mexicans do not allow their children to leave their care easily because they love their children. And so this had to be, they researched it, they made sure that this was going to be a happy solution. And 
So we all worked together, and after a year and a half, we were able to complete the adoption and went down. And, we, and on the trip down, even I took a little girl who was then eight back with me who had been up here. having She had been in a crib, and the kerosene lamp had fallen over and burned her face. So these wonderful plastic surgeons in Arcadia took this little girl into their home, and they worked on her face, and they had her at a point where she could go back and be with her grandparents in Mexico City, and then come back to them later when she needed more work. But she went with a ski mask on, and her face was being worked on. So the projects that we had were many. Um, and I, I loved it when I got her to Mexico City, and her grandmother, who was going to take care of her, was blind, so she couldn't see her. She didn't know that she was scarred and still in the process of redoing her face. But she finally has had work, and, and her face is beautiful today, thanks to these wonderful cosmetic surgeons in Arcadia. But anyway, we went down, and I went with the parents, and we got the girls, and then we brought them back, and they've just had a wonderful life. Oh, yes, and that's wonderful and such a great thing to do. And I would love to talk next about you were saying what led, or this was during the time that you were on the show Capital on TV, and how did that show sort of come to be? Well, that show came to be because I knew the producer, John Conboy, from New York, and uh, he actually started... He produced, along with the Bill family, a show called The Young and the Restless. And he had wanted me to come to do that show, but I couldn't leave New York at that time. And so he started, he created Capital, which was a Washington, D.C.-based story with senators and senators' families and all political and Washington, D.C., and uh, so he wanted me to play one of the female leads. And it was just after the King and I had closed on the road. And uh, so I did it. And my co-star was Carolyn Jones, who is a wonderful movie actress. And uh, unfortunately, Carolyn was not well and only lasted for a year uh, on the show. But she was just so unique and so special. Um, and but anyway, it was a it was a Washington-based show, very successful, yeah. and uh, it was a half-hour show right at noontime, and a lot of men used to come to me and say, you know, I go home for lunch because I just love to watch that show. Oh. Um, so it, it had a, a wonderful success, and John was a good friend and allowed me to commute between Mexico City and L.A. So they kind of helped me with my schedule so that I could be there for my ambassadorial duties and yet still get back and shoot the show. So yeah. it was a busy time, but it was a fun time and uh, a challenge. And what was the sort of challenge like of being on a daily show, which must have been a very time-consuming thing? Well, the challenge was, was physical, really. Oh. I mean, I had... I would have a huge dinner, maybe with uh, George Schultz, which did happen. Well, I had my first guest that 
we entertained in Mexico City were George and Barbara Bush. Oh. He was the vice president then. And uh, that was a huge party and a huge responsibility. And I had to be there. I just couldn't, I couldn't phone that one in. And yeah. so John Convoy made it possible for me to be there and do what I had to do. And then I came back and did the show. So it was the physical challenge more than anything else of, of um, going back and forth that I would many times leave CBS and go to the airport directly, get on a plane, fly to Mexico, get up the next morning, sit with the staff, plan what the party was, let's say, that night. And then after that party in Mexico City, I'd rush back to the airport and be back in L.A. to go to the studio to do another day's work. So I was always grateful for that three-hour, three-and-a-half-hour commute because I could learn my lines. Yeah. You know. And, and then I also had wonderful ladies in the residence. One was the secretary of the ambassador's residence in Mexico City, who just was wonderful, and she did so much of the work for me. Oh, yeah. And in the beginning, you know, there were there were exciting things that you do. We, we redid the residence of the ambassador, and uh, we had money donated to us by people like Roy and Patty Disney, um, to redo the residence and make it into an even prettier uh, presentation for an American embassy and um, parties that we gave. And then I went with actually uh, Heine Thiessen Bornemitza, who had the largest art collection in the world, and he loaned me art for the residence. And I had had paintings that were, I mean, George O'Keefe, and my theme was uh, the environment of the Americas. And of course, Mexico is part of the Americas, and so does the United States. And so we had all of these wonderful landscapes. And Thomas Benton, uh, really just beautiful paintings. And um, it was it was a wonderful experience to be able to to have that project. So uh, anytime I needed time, I would go to John Convoy and say, can you give me 24 hours? I need to go to New York to do this or whatever. He was just wonderful and understood my challenges. So it was it was complicated. It was challenging and hard, but it was wonderful. And I'd love to ask about a stage show that you did after Capital, which was Follies, which you did as Phyllis in a regional production, I believe. And what was it like to take on that Sondheim role? Hi, oh, well, any Sondheim role is a challenge. Oh, yeah. Boy, the lyrics are so difficult. And Follies, really, you know, she has that the one song that was my nightmare, Lucy and Jesse. Oh. And I just felt like I was rubbing my head and patting my stomach at the same time, always. And I would stand in the wings and run those lyrics before I would go on stage in the second act to do that song. And I, Craig Stevens and Alexis Smith were good friends. And I was with Craig one day and I asked him, I said, when Alexis did Folly, did she worry about, especially his second song, uh, Jesse, Lucy and Jesse, 
he said, oh my God, she stood in the wings every night and ran those songs in her head just before she went on stage. So I felt a little comforted that it wasn't just me, that they were difficult. But I, I was doing it in one show and I got distracted because the actor with me moved when he didn't usually move. And I don't know what happened, why he moved, but he started and I thought, oh gosh, he's gonna exit. And when I broke concentration, it was the first song that my character played uh, saying, and it was uh, Leave You was the song. Oh. And it's also rapid fire lyrics. And I went up and in the parlance of, of show, of, of stage acting, I went up, I forgot the lyric. And I, so I knew I had to keep going. So I did. I just said, hasafa, hasafa, hasafa. And I made these sounds, and I'm sure people with a hearing aid were hitting the hearing aid saying, what was that? What did she say? What, what, what was that? And anyway, I suddenly, I was back on. I remembered where I was and got back in the lyric. And no one except the conductor was the wiser and the actor I was working with. And... I walked off stage and Maxine Andrews, one of the Andrews sisters, was in the show and she was standing in the wings and she said, what was that, Polish? <laughs> so she heard it. Yeah. But the actor that I was working with, he and I, to this day, we can't look at each other because when we saw, when we finally looked at each other off stage, we got through the entire performance after that and at the very end, when we walked off into the wings, we both fell on our knees laughing <laughs> because it was just so awful when I forgot those lyrics. Oh, yeah. And so from that time on, he and I, if I saw him in a restaurant, across the restaurant, I would start laughing. So it was terrible. Yeah. But, but we made it. But oh my goodness. Yeah, Sondheim is so brilliant. Yeah. And it's genius, but it is hard. To, to learn. At least it was for me. Yeah. yeah. And something you did on Broadway that was a different kind of thing was you were an associate producer on Speed of Darkness in 1991. Yeah. And how did that sort of come about? Well, I was in Chicago doing a play, and I went to see that show, and I fell in love with it. It was so dramatic, so wonderful. And I thought a story that needed to be told. Yeah. And it was about a Vietnam, Vietnam vet and uh, his difficulty, almost impossible difficulty, trying to return to any kind of normal life after that experience. And we had wonderful actors. We opened at a theater on Broadway, uh, and we got a great review in the New York Times that night, we all sat at Sardi's and thought, we have a hit. And the next day, nobody came. Nobody oh. wanted to see a play about a Vietnam vet. And it just didn't make it. Yeah. So that was, that was a, I was so sad about that because I, I really was the one that was the instigator of that. And I got friends of mine to invest in it. And, uh, it just was a play that nobody wanted to see. Yeah, yeah. And 
I don't want to keep you for too long, but before we do wrap up, I want to talk about a role you played a lot, maybe even as much as in The King and I, which was Maria in The Sound of Music. And what sort of appealed to you about this role? You know, Maria in Sound of Music, The Sound of Music, first of all, it's a woman's show more than a man's show. It is the most satisfying acting experience because it's all about love. It's all about inspiration. It's it's happy. It's fun. Uh, the music is fun. The lyrics are fun to do. Doe a deer, a female deer. The children are wonderful. It's just a great, happy experience for two and a half hours. Yeah. And you you give the audience, the audience feels wonderful when they leave the theater. This is also true of The King and I, too. But especially The Sound of Music. It's just, every time I've done that show, I just love it. And it's it's a happy experience. You, you grow with happiness. It's positive. It's giving people something to believe in and enjoy, feel good about. So it's just a wonderful show. It's a happy show. And I believe that you continued doing it for almost 20 years in different places. And do you think that you... Oh, I have. I oh, think yeah. I've, done, I've done The Sound of Music, I think. I haven't actually sat down and counted them, but I think more than, than any performances of The King and I. Oh. That, that I just... Anytime Mr. Rogers had a production, he wanted to send it out. He would say, Connie, do you have time? Can you go do this? And I loved doing it. And we did it at Jones Beach, which was, at that time, uh, in the 70s, out on Long Island, was a huge venue that Guy Lombardo had, and it was all outdoors. And so you performed when it didn't rain. When it rained, you didn't perform, you didn't go on. But it was a big island, and they had the Alps built on the, on the back island, and so Maria started the show singing the sound of music coming down actual an actual mountain and the down over a, a little bridge onto another onto the main stage where the orchestra was so it, it was just a glorious way to do that show yeah and it was you never went back to your dressing room i was changing my clothes out behind a rock or a tree or whatever but it was uh, it was just a glorious summer and we broke all records at oh. at uh, the Jones Beach Theater. They 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 couldn't get in, the people in. I mean, it was just standing room only all summer. Both well, I did it three times out there, and it was three times that way. It was, the show is just so successful. And to bring us up to the present day, how did you first become involved in General Hospital, which you've been doing? Um. Okay, General Hospital, I play a character on General Hospital who is the most evil, uh, the richest um, woman in the world. I mean, she was created by Elizabeth Taylor many years ago, who watched General Hospital, was a big fan. She thought it would be great fun to go on the show. So they created this character of Helena Cassadine, and the Cassadine family are evil. And she was just this this powerful, beautiful, rich woman. And so she did it for, 
like I don't know how many performances, but with her busy life, she certainly could not make a career out of it. So the character kind of went away. And then about 20 years later, the producers decided to bring the character back. And so Wendy Rich, who's a wonderful producer, uh, brought me on the show. And so now it wasn't Elizabeth Taylor. She's now, the character is now tall, blonde, not brunette. And, uh, but anyway, so I just took the character and tried to make her my own. Uh, I had never played a dark character like that before. And I went to my drama coach and I said, I don't know how to do this. This is, and he said, this is going to be fun. So we started to work on it and I had, uh, a wonderful co-star and, uh, he made it a, a Tony, God, I can't think of Tony's, Tony Geary, um, Tony Geary was a wonderful actor, and everything I brought to it, he just took it and played with it, and we made them into kind of a uh, an unconsummated love duo, and uh, always trying to kill each other, but always had this sort of a sexual tension between us, and uh, so it was fun. Yeah. And she she's a she's an over the top character. You can't. You couldn't possibly overact with it because she is overacting all the time. And uh, other actors always say, God, I don't want to have a scene with, with Helena because when she leaves the room, I'm dead. Oh. So it is true. Every time she would go to see a doctor in his office, somehow the doctor would end up being dead. So some of the other actors said, please, I don't want to have a scene. I don't want to die. And is this a role that you would like to come back to after the pandemic? Because I know you were doing it as recently as 2019. Right. Well, they brought me back during the pandemic. They had me do it at home. I didn't have to go in and have a COVID test. Um, I would stay home and do it on the phone. And you know, they, they that's a, not a compliment to an actor that they phoned it in. It means that they didn't try very hard. And... Uh, did the, did the role but walked through it. Well, I was actually at home phoning it in. The characters on the show would get a phone call and then they would talk to Helena. And that was their nightmare. Yeah. That, you know, what terrible thing was she going going to arrange for them? So, so I did come back a few times. And so that's the fun of the character. She shows up when when there's some evil thing to do, they yeah. bring her back. So that's fun. And what has the pandemic been like for you as an actress and as a person? Well, for me as an actor, uh, certainly work slowed down. Yeah. But it was uh, it was a time to work on, on things. Uh, I spent a lot of time virtually in Zoom things with, with uh, drama class, which was good. And then I have someone that is my accompanist, so we could sing on Zoom oh. and work on things. So I kind of kept myself alive and and working on myself. So hopefully I was improving myself during that time. But it was the pandemic for me was like stopping the world and stepping off for a while. It was. Yeah. Uh, I found that by having a schedule. I could survive it. If I hadn't had a schedule, I think it would have been much worse. Yeah. But I, I, um, I had a, a 
I have a girl, I exercise every day. She would come to me, we left my garage door open and we worked out in the garage. So we were never, and we were masked and never touched, never got closer than, you know, the six foot distance. And then I have a trainer who also did the same thing. And uh, so they would come to me and that was scheduled every day. I knew I was gonna work out. Yeah. And so that helped. And then I had my classes on Zoom and that helped. So I kept myself regulated and I and organized and I got me through it. And what has given you the drive or made you passionate about continuing to perform through seventy years in the business? You know? I, I think my enjoyment of it. Yeah. Uh, I love to act and I love to sing and I, I love to perform. And I, I can't imagine people sometimes say, well, when are you going to retire? I can't imagine retiring. Yeah. Uh, I work less, but I still work. And I love the challenge. I, it's uh, part of me. It's part of who I am. Yeah. And the last question I'd love to ask you is, after all this time in the business, what is a piece of advice that you would give to somebody just starting out? Well, I'm asked often, you know, by young people, they'll say, how did you get started, or should I try, or I want to get started and I don't know what to do. My first question is always, is there anything else that you think you'd rather do in life? Yeah. And if they say, no, this is my passion, this is what... It's the only thing I can imagine myself doing. Then I say what you have to do is prepare yourself because there will be a moment of luck. There will be a moment, and it seems to happen in people's lives, when you're offered an opportunity. Just be ready and make sure that you're ready. So study, know what you're doing. And also the other thing that I would advise anyone is study something else. Have something else you can do, because there are ups and downs, there are dry periods where you don't work, and there are periods when you work, you can't do all of the jobs that you're offered. And you need to be able to sustain yourself, number one. So if you have another career, another something that you can do, it's very important so that you can take care of yourself yeah. if, and if acting jobs don't come your way. But then make sure that you study and make sure that you're prepared. So when you do get a chance to do something, you can make the most of it. You can take advantage of it. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for doing this. It's been wonderful to talk to you and an honor, really. Thank well, you. Well, thank you. And Listeners, I thank you for tuning in. And remember to buy tickets to the 54 Below show. And remember to come back next time when I am joined by the great librettist and lyricist Michael Corey. Michael Corey began his career as a journalist, writing and editing for The Village Voice, but he has gone on to be one of the most influential voices in musical theatre in the 21st century, having penned lyrics for shows including Grey Gardens, Warpaint, Dr. Zhivago, Flying Over Sunset, Happiness, The Garden of the Finzi Contini's, and Far From Heaven, with writing partners such as Scott Frankel, James Lapine, Tom Kitt, and Ricky Ian Gordon.
His contributions to the opera canon include Harvey Milk, which included the first presentation of openly gay love scenes on the operatic stage, as well as Kabbalah, Where's Dick, The Grapes of Wrath, and Hopper's Wife? You won't want to miss this fascinating interview, which doubles as a masterclass in theatrical writing. So make sure to tune back in for that, and thanks for listening.